0: on this episode of A New York Minute in History.
1: I found reference to a story of a young boy. He attributes his survival to going to the springs.
2: It was just a case of people thinking, okay, I don't want to go to the doctor and be bled. They could go to Saratoga or Richfield Springs and be able to think that they were taking charge of their own cure.
3: We go back in time to experience the horrors of early 19th century medicine and the Healing Springs movement it helped create. It's all up next, right after this.
0: From the Irish invasion of Canada to the early days of the movies, the William G. Pomeroy Foundation is delighted to sponsor this podcast to broaden our understanding of history. We are also proud to help people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic roadside markers. Here in the Empire State and across the country, we support marker grant programs that include commemorating women's suffrage, civil rights, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. Since 2006, we funded over 1,300 markers across all our programs nationwide. To learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit wgpfoundation.org. That's wgpfoundation.org.
3: Welcome to a New York Minute in History. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian.
0: And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the water cure and its popularity in New York State in the 19th century. Now, being the Saratoga County historian, I'm quite familiar with the popularity of the mineral springs in both Saratoga Springs and Boston Spa in my county. But today, the marker we're going to be focusing on is actually found in central New York. Located in Shenango County in the town of Pitcher is a marker titled Pitcher Springs. And the text reads By 1843, A village with two public houses, an academy, a store, and 30 dwellings grew near Sulphur Springs, thought to have healing properties. William G. Pomeroy Foundation, 2013. This is what we know about Pitcher Springs. It was a small hamlet situated in the town of Pitcher that boasted two or three Sulphur Springs, and it became a popular area for tourists to come and take in these waters in the hopes that it would heal whatever their ailments were. I spoke with the current Pitcher Town clerk, Emily Stith, who has a personal connection to the town's history.
1: We currently don't have a historian. The previous historian was my grandmother, Rita Stith, and no one has filled that role since her passing.
0: Emily's grandmother was the one who applied for the Pomeroy marker back in 2013.
1: This was definitely a labor of love for her. Settlers in this area kind of gravitated towards the hillside farms, it was difficult to find water that was pure because anything in the river valleys, there was a lot of marshland. I did find one story where there was a young man named Dennison Hakes, who just happened to be walking one day from his father's hillside farm that wasn't far from the springs, And he actually was able to drink from the water. And there was also another story, there was a Corps of Workmen that were clearing a road from Norwich all the way through Pitcher called the Center Road. One of those men from the Corps of Workmen located this and had recognized it to be a mineral spring, which was rising in popularity in other areas. They actually erected several boarding houses. There were hotels, an academy was built. They had a bowling alley, there was a tavern. The Eagle House was a grand hotel and they believed that it was built from wealthy investors that came from New York City or Philadelphia or Albany or California, but they pretty much relied on the consumption and bathing in the springs. I found reference to what they referred to as rose cancer at the time, which I can only surmise to be what we would call rosacea now that people utilize to address that. I also found reference to a story of a young boy whose name was Louis Harrington, and he had come down with typhoid fever, and they found it in family diaries where he attributes his survival to going to the springs and actually drinking the water.
0: One of the advertisements for the Eagle House says the proprietor is now and has been for the past six months successfully treating diseases in all its forms, hydropathically, and is happy to say that he has had none under his care any length of time but what have been benefited by the water treatments at his establishment, located at Pitcher Springs. Pitcher Springs experienced its heyday in the 1830s and 40s. But according to The History of Shenango County by James H. Smith, published in 1880, it was short-lived. By the time Smith was writing his book, only two buildings remained, and it had long since gone dormant as a tourist attraction. There's no doubt the hamlet's popularity was a result of its mineral springs. So what made people turn to spring water as a type of medicine in the first place?
3: Well, the idea wasn't totally new. Baths and springs certainly had popularity in Europe. And people in many rural areas, without easy access to physicians, were often self-medicating and using things like botanical remedies that may have been passed down from generation to generation. And certainly, the Native Americans had their own traditional healing methods, some of which may have included springs. But we also have to remember what people's official medical options were at the time. What we know from researching this topic is that during the colonial era and throughout the early to mid-19th century, America was a particularly unhealthy country, at least when you compare it to Europe. Established physicians, those who called themselves doctors, received poor training that was based heavily on medical practices that dated back to ancient Greece. This was called heroic medicine and was a belief that the body had to be shocked back to health as a result of diseases that affected the humors, otherwise known as your blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. This is what they believed. These were the doctors who were actually trained. Some of these doctors were trained at medical schools. Mostly during the 18th century, these would have existed in Europe, although there were a few in the United States, including Colombia. But other physicians were trained by being apprentices to a physician. And uh, sometimes this lasted as little as one year. Now, I have to remember, too, that uh, at this time, surgery and surgeons were different than physicians. They may have had more knowledge about anatomy, but very little knowledge about how to manage pain. Oddly, most surgeons up to the Civil War era were also barbers. What? It was believed that if you could handle a surgeon's knife, you could also handle a pair of shears.
0: That's a comforting thought.
3: (laughs) During the 19th century, there were three basic ways that physicians would treat an ailment. Number one, bloodletting which was draining a patient's blood and was used for various fevers that were rampant during the era as a result of outbreaks of cholera, yellow fever, malaria, etc. Frequently, this process was done so often to a patient that death would result. For example, in 1799, President George Washington was diagnosed by one of his physicians as having an inflammatory affection of the upper part of the windpipe, which led to a fever and laborious respiration. The report stated, quote, the necessity of bloodletting suggesting itself to the general, he procured a bleeder in the neighborhood who took from the arm in the night 12 or 14 ounces of blood. The following day, Discovering the case to be highly alarming and foreseeing the fatal tendency of the disease, two consulting physicians were immediately sent for. In the interim were employed two copious bleeders. A blister was applied to the part affected. Two moderate doses of Calomel were given. An injection was administered which operated on the lower intestines, but all without any perceptible advantage. Upon the arrival of the first of the consulting physicians, it was agreed to try the result of another bleeding, when about 32 ounces were drawn, without the smallest apparent alleviation of the disease. 10 grains of calomel were given, succeeded by repeated doses of emetic tartar, amounting to five or six grains. The powers of life seemed now manifestly yielding to the force of the disorder. Blisters were applied to the extremities, together with a cataplasm of bran and vinegar to the throat. Speaking, which was painful from the beginning, now became almost impracticable. Respiration grew more and more contracted and imperfect till he expired without a struggle.
0: That's terrifying.
3: Sounds like medieval torture. Yeah. And this was George Washington, first president.
0: So you would think he would be able to afford the best medical treatment of the time.
3: These were the most famous physicians that he could call for. They were students of Benjamin Rush, who was at the time the most famous physician in North America, and he was a major proponent of bloodletting and also was confused by how much blood the human body actually held. He believed it held two times as much blood as it actually did.
0: Devin, you also mentioned besides the bloodletting that they were blistering him. What does that mean?
3: Yeah, there's a couple other things. He ran the whole gamut. Blistering was basically when a blister was raised on a part of the body that was ill and then broken. And the discharge from the broken blister was thought to include whatever toxins were affecting the ill person. Of course, none of this had any reality in science or medicine as we know it, but these were the types of treatments that your average person, when they would go to a physician, this is what they would get. Emetics and purgatives were kind of the third thing that physicians had at the time. Purgatives were more common, and the most common of these was called calomel, which was mentioned in the Washington account, and also happened to contain mercury, which as we know is highly toxic and can cause death.
0: It begs the question, why would physicians use these treatments if they either didn't work or caused the death of their patients?
3: Physicians use these treatments because they did something. A physician couldn't just say, well, there's nothing I can do for you. Just go home and write it out, get better or die. That's not something that a physician could say and hope to have repeat business.
0: All right, so if I lived in the early 1800s and I had a health issue and my choices were (laughs) (laughs) bloodletting, blistering and purgatives or i could try this newly popular water cure i think it would be pretty easy to choose which direction i would go in
3: and it's something that i talked about with thomas a chambers a professor of history at canisius college who wrote the book drinking the waters creating an american leisure class at 19th century mineral springs And one of the concepts that uh, we talked about was the democratization of American medicine.
2: People started to see that maybe they could take a greater role in their own health. A lot of physicians began to prescribe a variety of different cures. And even being able to scientifically say, this water has this mineral composition, therefore it helps with these ailments. And everything from dyspepsia to cancer to infertility, each spring was claimed to have a specific curative power over that particular ailment. Whether or not there's any actual efficacy to that, uh, I'm not a physician, but the promoters at the time certainly said it, and many people would include testimonials that they went to the springs, they drank the water, and it cured whatever was wrong with them. So they could go to Saratoga or Richfield Springs or wherever and be able to think that they were taking charge of their own cure. They were doing something that had a visible effect. In a more general sense though, it just was going out in some cases to a a more rural place with fresher air, a little exercise. People would like to walk and ride, to eat maybe a slightly better diet, and certainly to drink something that if it has no other effect, and even today a lot of these springs at least have the effect of calming your stomach, uh, and they can also be uh, diuretics.
3: So they were turning away from these invasive, terrible, and sometimes deadly medicine prescribed for them by physicians and towards healing springs, botanical treatments, homeopathy, and non-traditional diets such as Sylvester Graham's vegetarianism and his belief in eating whole grain, which led to a popular movement that gave us the graham cracker, or as our own Dr. James Henry Salisbury, an early proponent of both the germ theory and the paleo diet, who gave us the Salisbury steak, which he recommended be eaten three times a day with strong coffee to relieve diarrhea.
0: Changing the diet, which is, of course, something we still use today, became a very popular way that you could also control your health. Some of the things that were served at sanitariums, both in Pitcher Springs and Saratoga Springs, were graham crackers and graham pudding. Depending on what your health issue was, you may be prescribed to drink from different springs with different mineral properties. Or you may apply the mineral springs to your skin in different places. If you had rheumatism, if you had a wound, you might soak that extremity in the spring water and then wrap bandages around it. People would soak in mineral baths. Some would be doused in cold mineral water. For some reason, they felt that The colder it was, the more effective it was, or at least so it seems by the accounts of people who were writing about taking the water cure during that time. There was a cost when you wanted to go and stay at one of these sanitariums, but just to drink the water, they were seen as public. So I know in Saratoga Springs and Ballston Spa, it was important, especially to the local citizens, that the people who were coming to take the water could get the water for free. You may have tipped a dipper boy or somebody who was actually reaching into the spring to take the water out for you. But if you could pay to get yourself, you know, transportation to one of these places, then the water itself was to be enjoyed by everyone. That's an important part of also taking back some control because Medicine was expensive, and a lot of people did not have the means to pay for individual treatments by these physicians.
3: Okay, so we know what's attracting people to these springs, but how were some of these resorts built, like Balsam Spa and Saratoga Springs?
0: Their locations really lent themselves to ease of transportation for visitors far and wide. One of those main routes was the Hudson River. It was navigable up to Albany, and then after they got off their boat, they could take a stagecoach up to Saratoga, which wasn't terrible. One of the earliest railroads was one that went from Albany to first Boston Spa and then the following year, Saratoga Springs. There was a railroad to get to Saratoga Springs in 1833, so that's very Mm. early for railroads. And then once you bring them there, you need to provide accommodations for them and then also other things to do to fill the time. So in addition to building large hotels and sanitariums and things like that, there was also the desire to provide entertainment for the guests while they were staying there. Early on, guests didn't stay more than a week, usually, and then as time went on, the proprietors of the hotels wanted them to stay longer and longer, so they thought of more things for them to do during the summer months. Ballston Spa was popular as a destination for the healing waters prior to Saratoga Springs, and they had the Sanssouci Hotel, which was a world-renowned hotel that could hold a lot of visitors. But once Gideon Putnam starts going in Saratoga Springs, he's really seen as kind of the father of the city. He was responsible for laying out the streets and he made accommodations for things like a school and church and a burying ground and really set up the village of Saratoga Springs. And that's when we get into the Victorian era and the popularity of Saratoga Springs for the wealthy. Now they're coming and staying for the entire summer season. We have the development of the racetrack. We have the fashion, high fashion scene in Saratoga.
3: We're really talking about the tourism industry kind of being born. And it's something that we spoke with Thomas Chambers about.
2: It happened, I think, because we got to the point where in the United States there were people with leisure time. They had money. They had the ability not to have to work all the time. And with that, they wanted to both do something to pass the time, but also to display their wealth and their newfound status. And where do they go to do that? You know, Leisure at this point in time still had to be somehow productive, so you couldn't go to an amusement park that was uh, too profligate. But if you went to a health resort, well, then you were doing something good for yourself. And that was acceptable leisure in American culture at the time. And especially as cities became more crowded and more unhealthy in the summer months, people would want to escape and go somewhere where they could either in the south, get to the mountain air. Certainly, that's the same idea to getting to Saratoga, especially from Manhattan, is that you went to a healthier climate. And when you went to that healthier climate, you also wanted to be there with people who were of your similar social ilk. They're from all over the country. You know, Saratoga is a national resort. And there they were able to meet, in some cases, politicians, businessmen. There is certainly courtship that happens there. It's a place to see and be seen. And in the emerging market economy, people want to be able to display their wealth. Those summer resorts are one of the best ways that that can be done.
3: You also note that the springs in specifically Virginia and New York, quote, functioned as a laboratory for the new nation and a site of unification during the late 19th century. So this is post-Civil War era. Can you explain this? Because this is a fascinating concept.
2: Yeah, one of the interesting things is that, you know, after the Civil War, there needs to be some sense of uh, bringing the country back together. One way to do that was for those elites that had, in some cases, borne arms against each other to find ways that they could create some sort of new national identity or new national unity. Uh, Again, leisure is an easy way to do that. And if you can find resorts where people from North and South can gather together and exercise their social status, well, maybe then they're worried about something other than the extension of slavery or the preservation of states' rights, uh, You know, depending on which part of the United States you're from.
3: How successful really was that though? It seems that certainly would be successful with the very elite classes, but these resorts were really not accessible to great swaths of the nation.
2: Well, you have kind of two categories of springs, if you will: uh, national resorts and then local ones. Almost every county in the United States, at some point in time, had some sort of a springs. You know, you look at place names on maps, and springs are pop up everywhere. Mm. There's something like over 70 towns in America called Saratoga, mm. really trying to imitate that early success. And so, small towns would have a proprietor build a hotel, declare that the water was healthy uh, and attract people. And so maybe you weren't one of the wealthy national elite, but you know you were a successful merchant in your town. Well, you went to that Springs Resort. That was your way of finding some sense of, of local or regional authority. For most people, it was the local place that they went to and, and the prevalence of them across the country really, I think shows that Springs Resorts were everyday part of 19th century America, at least while the water was still running.
3: Saratoga is still a a major destination, and the springs are heavily visited every time I go there. There's people drinking from the water. Is there a set of reasons or a reason that the spring movement kind of wanes?
2: It was a number of different factors. You know, Something as simple as people started to realize that maybe the spring water didn't cure the diseases that it claimed, and so that, that sort of fell out of favor. People's ability to travel changed as well, you know, with the evolution of, of, of railroad travel, people were able to go farther, faster. Saratoga Springs, the horse track is much more exciting, and gambling is much more exciting by the, uh, the latter half of the 19th century there. People's tastes and interests changed. Right now, you could probably point to any number of different kinds of hospitality and tourism trends that come and go. Last summer during the, the coronavirus pandemic, people wanted to go into the countryside, and so camping had a resurgence at that point in time, just because that was what was of most interest to people then. As people were able to travel more, Mineral Springs resorts fell out of fashion to a significant degree.
3: So as we see the leisure industry and the tourism industry really become created around these springs, what does this all mean for the actual healing properties of the springs or the medical establishment that we were talking about before? many of these alternative practices often opened the doors to unscrupulous medical practitioners who advocated a variety of false medicines, which became known as snake oil. Now, most of us know about the Civil War and how many soldiers on both sides died on the field of battle, but we may not be aware that many more died from disease. One way to look at the Civil War was as a laboratory for American medicine. For physicians and surgeons, the Civil War provided a terrible but real opportunity to use things like anesthesia to learn how to better perform amputations and take care of operations of the vascular system and things like catastrophic injuries that they otherwise may not have come across. And despite its inability to handle most of the cases, the field itself did learn from that terrible tragedy of the Civil War. I think you have a medical field that realized it was behind the times, that there needed to be more medical schools, there needed to be licensing of physicians and surgeons, that this needed to be looked at as a science, which is something that American physicians had denied for a long time. In a way, it was the turn away from established medicine and the creation of alternative forms of medicine, along with the Civil War, that kind of woke the American medical establishment up and helped them become more scientific and start to believe in things like the germ theory and understanding how all of that worked. So Lauren, you mentioned in the 1880 history of Shenango County that by 1880, Pitcher Springs is really non-existent. Can you tell us a little bit why that might have happened and how different that is from Saratoga Springs, which is still thriving today?
0: Part of the difference, I think, it's probably the reason that Saratoga remained popular was, one, because of location, two, we had the bottling of the water. Mm. That became such a lucrative part of being able to make money on the springs. Because, of course, we're talking about New York. New York's got, what, four good months of weather? (laughs) And then what happens? So you didn't even need to come to Saratoga anymore, but the people who had the rights to bottle the water at the different springs, were still able to make a profit. So that way they could keep those hotels or sanatoriums or areas of entertainment open during the good months, and then they had a a sustaining income in the winter. The ultimate blow, according to Emily, is what you were talking about, Devin. After the Civil War, medicine got better, and the springs movement went into a decline.
1: Additionally, part of the reason for like the buildings, for it to become like a ghost town, was that it was so difficult to get materials that a lot of the houses that were raised, they took them down and they built things later. If you don't know what happened to Pitcher Springs, I can tell you Pitcher Springs built half of Pitcher because they moved the materials to build other homes. And actually, the Eagle House, that was taken down and part of that lumber was taken to Norwich to build another building in Norwich. Civil War happened. A lot of fortunes were lost. And I even found reference to the Gold Rush in California where they said that as many as 200 people from the Pitcher and Forsalia area left to join the Gold Rush to go to California. (laughs) i just really honored that you reached out to us for this particular thing, because I have to tell you, my grandmother would just be over the moon. For years, actually, in the area of the Springs, there was just like an old dilapidated house. You might even miss it. You wouldn't even know it was there. And with the effort of getting the historical marker, the town actually erected a park. So now there's a pavilion, there's some picnic tables, it's mowed, people could have a party there if they wanted to, and there is still a house over the springs. It is still in existence, it hasn't dried up. Um, It is something that visitors could come see and spend some time if they liked.
0: listening to a New York Minute in History. This podcast is a production of WAMC, the New York State Museum, and Archivist Media with support from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation.
3: Our producer is Jesse King. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at nyhistoryminute or check us out at wamcpodcast.org.
0: Until next time, I'm Lauren Roberts.
3: And I'm Devin Lander. Excelsior!